everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're the hosts here of our Book Talk series. And today we're very excited to welcome Federico Pretas, who's Assistant Professor of History at North Carolina State University in the US. And he's going to be discussing his new book, Nationalizing Nature, Iguazu Falls and National Parks at the Brazil-Argentina border. And it came out with Cambridge University Press this year, 2021. So Federico, we'll give it over to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. I would like to, to thank you, uh, you two, for, for inviting me for this great uh, presentation. I have a, a very short presentation that I'm going to read, and then we can have uh, for, for the Q&A. So um, my book, Nationalizing Nature, investigates the origins of national parks in two of the largest countries in the region, Brazil and Argentina. To do so, the book focuses on two of the first national parks created in the region, the Iguazu National Park, Parque Nacional Iguazu, created by Argentina in 1934, and its namesake, Iguazu National Park, Parque Nacional do Iguazu, established across the border in Brazil in 1939, five years later. The two parks were named after their, their most important attraction, the Iguazu Falls, a 1.6 mile long system of cascades that forms one of the largest waterfalls in the world. The Iguazu Falls are located on the Iguazu River, which forms the boundary between Brazil and Argentina. Indeed, the falls are shared between the two countries with a significant section belonging to Argentina and the rest located in Brazil. Although the parks share the same name, and the same waterfall, they are entirely separate from each other. They are divided by the, by the international boundary, separating them and independently managed by each country. Even to this day, collaboration between rangers from the two parks is minimal. In fact, one of the things that I, I demonstrate in my book is that the parks were created in response to each other in a kind of national parks arms race, where policymakers in Brazil and Argentina would react developments across the border and pressure their own governments to create a park on their side of the Iguazu Falls. The 1930s, when these two parks were created, were a decade of increasing nationalism in the entire region. And geopolitics framed, framed how politicians in Rio and Buenos Aires would look at their side of the borderline. Politicians in Brazil and Argentina feared that the excessive number of foreigners from neighboring countries could undermine their grip of their side of the border. Thus, I show how in the 1930s, Brazil, Brazilian and Argentine policymakers proposed the creation of parks around the Iguazu Falls to work as tools to nationalize their side of the, this borderline. Therefore, the two national parks would serve uh, contradictory goals. On the one hand, they would protect the falls and the forests surrounding them for future generations, one of the classic goals of national parks. But on the other hand, they would also create in, an infrastructure to attract national colonists to move to this border area. Using a national park to settle, for example, Argentine farmers at the borderland was a unique feature of conservation policy in these two countries in the 1930s and 1940s. Usually, parks are nominally established to act as a check on colonization. The two goals protecting nature and colonizing the borderland are opposites. One cannot protect nature from destruction forests from being cut at the same time that one settles migrants into the same, that same area. And this was the contradiction of the nationalization of borderlands through national park policy 
as seen in, this, in the case of the two Iguazu plots. This contradiction between nature protection and frontier development would continue to be the key feature of these parks for the next 40 years until a new synthesis would come into place. The first two chapters of my book are dedicated to show how Argentina and Brazil used their parks as two for border colonization. Argentina took the extreme path of promoting colonization inside the, the, the lands it, it set aside for its national park. So the new Argentine National Park Agency would be responsible for attracting and selecting settlers, selling or leasing lands inside their national park, their national, their new national parks, and building and managing all the infrastructure settlers required, hospitals, schools, sanitation, street grid, electricity, etc. Inside the Argentine Iguazu National Park, the Argentine National Park Agency created a town today called Puerto Iguazu and started to sell set, uh, parcels of land to settlers. In a more moderate way, Brazil also used its own Iguazu National Park to promote borderland colonization. Brazilians, however, did not put settlers inside their national park, at least not on purpose. They did so because, among other things, they already had a town nearby called Foz Iguazu. They used national park funding to finance a series of, of infrastructure works in, in Foz Iguazu that had nothing to do with conservation. So they built outside, outside the national park, they built a hydroelectric power plant, they built a hotel, uh, an airport, roads, schools, et cetera, while, all with national park funding. Both Brazil and Argentina established national parks around Iguazu in the 1930s, designing them as two to attract migrants from their densely populated Atlantic seaboards to a sparsely inhabited borderline. In the 1970s, however, a paradigm change led the military regimes in Brazil and Argentina to violently evict settlers from their national parks, highlighting the complicated relationship between authoritarianism and conservation in the southern cone. The book's two following chapters investigate how these two parks, which are first envisioned as frontier, uh, from, uh, as frontier occupation twos, became later sanctuaries of pristine nature devoid of people. The chapters show how at the height of the military dictatorship in the, in the two countries, the 1960s and the 1970s, the federal governments in Brazil and Argentina employed authoritarian methods to remove settlers from their parts. In Argentina, there was a town inside the national park, Puerto Iguazu, created by the Argentine National Park Agency in the 1930s. I described how the town uh, was born with the Argentine National Park Administration selling land to settlers. The National Park Agency wanted to create a settlement with model Argentine citizens. And I discuss in the book how all the issues that this initiative entailed. The 1960s bring this change of paradigm that I talked before. And now parks no longer should harbor settlements. Therefore, the Argentine National Park Administration decides to remove all settlers from their park. They, they did do through a mixture of retracing park boundaries to remove most of the town from inside the park's territory and evicting the remaining settlers who live in other areas of the park. In Brazil, things were more, more uh, complex. For a series of complicated reasons that related to issues of public land tenure in Brazil that I discussed in, in greater detail in the book, they had even more settlers living inside the park, about 2,500 people. These were in their great majority Brazilians of German descent, third or, or fourth generation Brazilians who moved from other areas of Brazil and settle inside the Brazilian park a decade or two after its creation. They were mostly small farmers. They had open farms 
villages, schools, and churches inside the port in Brazil. Eventually, they were all evicted in the 1970s. In the book, I show how the Brazilian military dictatorship used the same institutional tools that it had recently developed to promote colonization in the Amazon to carry out the eviction of settlers from this national park in its southern border. In the end, this military dictatorship succeeded in removing all settlers. Those who resist, resisted were arrested and threatened with torture, and in some cases, they were, they were actually tortured. And today, the area previously occupied by settlers, especially inside the Brazilian park, is covered by forest. The traces of their presence have been raised by nature and in the park's official discourse. One of the things that really interested me when I was writing the book was the actual spatial processes through which a national park becomes a national park. In the case of the two Guasu parks, this question is particularly relevant because unlike many other protected areas in Latin America, these two parks were never paper parks. They actually worked as, as national parks and they worked as conservation areas. So in chapter five of, of my book, I follow park rangers as they move through the territory of the two parks to fight hunting and logging. Because the parks are divided by the international boundary between Argentina and Brazil, any conflict between hunters from one side and rangers from the other side had the potential to become a minor diplomatic issue. And there were clashes indeed, which sometimes became violent. In the sources, park rangers in Argentina are always accusing Brazilian settlers living inside the Brazilian park of crossing the border to poach in Argentine territory. They would argue that the Argentine legislation was too lenient attracting Brazilians to hunt across the border. The evidence that Brazilians were crossing the border, however, was all circumstantial. Brazilians were rarely actually caught by Argentine rangers hunting or cutting hard palm in Argentina. To test the veracity of the discourse of Argentine rangers accusing Brazilians, I used GIS to map hundreds of cases of environmental violations at the Argentine borderland between the 1940s and the 1970s which uh, confirmed the presence of, a Brazilian Argent, uh, of, of Brazilians inside the Argentine park. So there were the Argentine, uh, where the Brazilian, Brazilian settlers were actually crossing the border to, to hunt in, inside the Argentine park. In the book's last chapter, I use uh, a wealth of historical aerial and satellite imagery from 1953 to the present to investigate how parks affected the borderland environment. I do so both quantitatively and qualitatively. I used first um, historical images to reconstruct the region's land cover and estimate land change between 1953 and 2014. Overall, what I found confirmed the powerful effect of establishing the parks, especially the Iguazu National Park in Brazil, in creating territories of protected nature. Throughout the years, the parks acted as, active barrier, as an active barrier preventing the conversion of forests into farmland. The presence of the park parks also created forests, especially in areas previously occupied by settlers. Another notable thing is the formation of a clear-cut boundary uh, between uh, the, the areas that were later occupied by farmers outside the parks and the areas that were, uh, that were protected as forests inside the parks. I also used um, historical satellite and aerial images to investigate some loose threads in the, of the park's historical narrative. 
The main one was the fate of the Guarani indigenous people that traditionally lived in this area. Written sources are silent when it comes to the indigenous population living inside the territory of the two ports. Interviews conducted by anthropologists in the, 1900, in the 1990s with elders of nearby Guarani communities indicate that some of them lived in the areas of, of the port before the create, their creation. It's not clear, however, if they were displaced by settlers and, and, and violence before the creation of the ports or after the 1930s. I used aerial images produced in 1953 to identify some of the areas that might have been previously occupied by Guarani communities inside the park. Although they do not provide a def definitive response about the timeline of Guarani communities there, they can guide the future works of archeologists and anthropologists in finding material evidence of the existence of historical indigenous people living inside the parks. To sum up, this was a very, very brief overview in broad strokes of the content of my book, Nationalizing Nature, which is this book here, this is the cover. The book was, has much more detailed information about different aspects of the park, including some details on individual characters. And it also discusses in depth some of the concepts and ideas that I mentioned in this brief presentation. So um, I'll be happy to discuss more of this in, in the Q&A. Thank you. Uh, that was an uh, interesting presentation. So uh, I would like to ask you just to, if you get us started then, do you have a, a map that you could share just so we get some sense of geography there? Because I'm in part thinking about, you know, so the river, the river works as the border, is that it? Um, yeah. And then yeah. also then how big are these parks? Uh, how far out do they go from the falls? I'll, I'll show you a map. Here, I'm opening it. Some reasons. There it is. So this is um, this is Brazil. This is Argentina. The Amazon is up here. This is São Paulo and Rio. This is where most people live in Brazil. This is Buenos Aires. And this is the area where the parts are were created. Um, this is about 180,000 hectares. This is about 45,000 hectares. The falls are here. The purple uh, line is the boundary between Brazil and Argentina. And on this side here, you have Paraguay. So this is Brazil, all Brazil. This is all Argentina. This is all Paraguay. And these are the two ports. Another famous landmark in this region is the Itaipu Dam, which was finished in 82. It's a big, at the time, it was the largest hydroelectric dam in the world. Jacob Blank uh, wrote a recent book on this, this dam. Uh, so that's, that's my region. Okay. So, that's very, very helpful yeah, yeah. Um, to see that. So you mentioned that one, that there are, was some development of hydropower um, in the area. Was it also on like the Brazilian side on that river upstream of this or only that dam you just mentioned? So this is a great question. So this river here, which formed the, the boundary between um, Paraguay and Brazil and the later Paraguay in down, down river Paraguay in Argentina is the Paraná River, which is a major river in South America. 
this river here is the Iguazu River, which is in this section forms the boundary between Argentina and, and Brazil. These are two major rivers. The falls are in the Iguazu uh, River. The hydroelectric power plants that were created by the two parts in the 1930s, each part created one. They were all in small uh, affluents of the Iguazu River. So they're like small, small, very small uh, power plants just to, to generate uh, electricity to the, what was at the time, small towns in the region. Pozuguasu is the Brazilian town here and Portuguese is here. They were like a very small town with like a couple, not even a thousand people and, and they didn't have to generate a lot of electricity. In the eighties, they finished the major uh, Itaipu Dam and that's, I think it's still the, the largest hydroelectric power plant in terms of, of average year generation, although it's not the largest in capacity. I think the Three Gorges Dam in, in China has the largest capacity, but it has not been generating as much, generating as much energy as, as Itaipu. And Argentina and Paraguay downriver also created another big uh, hydroelectric dam later after Taipu downriver. But that there's no hydroelectric plan close to the falls. The closest is one here, as you can see. So you can't see hydroelectric power plants from the falls. Like you, if you go to Niagara Falls, you see a lot of development. Iwasu, it's very different that it's all surrounded by forest because because of the two parks. Mm. Do the, <clears throat> the plants influence the, the water flow of the river? They do, they do, they definitely do. And that, that's an issue yeah. uh, beginning with the, the 80s when they started to build all these plants there, it becomes an issue. Yeah. All right, we have a couple of questions here in the chat now. So uh, Gregory first, I will unmute you there. All right, can you hear me now? All right, great, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, thank you for the presentation, Federico. That was very interesting. Um, it sounds to me, though, this was very sort of top-down state-level action. Was there a, what's the popular reception to this? Was there a call for it? Were the conservation organizations advocating for this? Was there a popular drive for this? Or is this just simply a state-down nationalistic project? I think that's a good question. Um, so there's two different countries and the dynamic happens a little different on the two sides of the border in the 1930s. And both countries you have um, what we can call today conservationists, people with a scientific background in the 1920s, 1910s, 1930s, calling for the creation of national parks. You have the the profile of these groups are a little different in each country, but you have that. Uh, you have people publishing uh, ads in, in local newspapers uh, calling for the creation of different national parks in different parts of these two countries. And in and, and this region, it also have local, the local elites of the two, uh, in the case of Brazil, it's a state, in the case of, of 
Argentina at the time was a territory controlled by the federal government and then, then, then became, becomes a province in the 1950s. But you have uh, the people, the elites of these two subnational uh, political divisions calling for the creation of parks and around these falls because the, the falls since the 1890s were attracting visitors and they were, for, they were the border, the boundary line was already settled. There was no uh, diplomatic disputes about where the, the line, the, the boundary line was situated. But the falls were divided by the two countries and the elites of the local elites started to, to call their respective federal governments to establish a park to protect their sides of the falls. So you have this dynamic where every time one side does one thing, for example, um, Argentina and the local government uh, issue a law saying that they should create a national park. The other side say, we need to do the same. And the other side do some planning for the future national park. Sends like a, some, uh, do a survey of the area. The other park does the same. The other side does the same. So you have like this dynamic this local elites pushing for the creation of the park, of the two parks. And the way that they sell this to the federal governments at the end was that these parks would be great to promote the development of the border, um, to bring settlers to, to move to this border. And that, that's the way they, they, they designed the parks at the end in the 1930s when the parks were created. All right, so we have a question from Eva. Uh, hello, Frederico. Hi. Uh, uh, Finona and, and um, Dolly took my my questions on hydropower, of course, uh, uh, but I, I will try to find something else to 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 uh, put as a question. I, I I visited this area a couple of years ago. Uh, of course, I was interested in the Itaipu Dam, which was a one of the most impressive buildings I've, I've ever visited, but on the other side. But, but at the same time, uh, around these falls, it was what I would call a tourist machinery. Uh, and I, I, I must admit that I was not really aware that I was visiting a national park because it, it, it just didn't feel like a national park. Um, uh, and I stayed in some design ho jungle hotel on the Brazilian side. Uh, could, could you say something if there is a, a discussion then about some limits of, of uh, tourism in this area when you still try to protect it in some way? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, one of the things that I... I I talk a little bit about my book, especially in the introduction is, it's about the, I use it as a hook to start my book about the actual spatial experience of people who go to, to the falls to see the falls. Because when you go, because the area that the two parks open for visitation is a very small area rest, restrict to the immediate surroundings of the falls. So unlike uh, many national parks in the United States, for example, 
you cannot like go wander around and go on a hike and get like a wilderness permit and, and, and go to the back country. There's nothing like that. Most of the territory of the two parks are off limits to tourists. You can go there if you're like a scientist, you can, have, can get a permit and you do some studies. But if you're like a tourist, you only goes to, can only go to the falls. Until recently in, in Brazil, for example, you can not even like drive inside the park. You have to park outside the park and get a bus to go to see the falls. And that is, that's something that I don't cover much in my book because I, I stopped my book mostly in the 1980s. And this, the development of this uh, structure started in the 1990s when uh, all the parks in Brazil and Argentina and most Latin America are reframed as these areas of protection of biodiversity. So they, they are seen by the people who manage them, the people in the national park agencies, more in Brazil than in Argentina, but also in Argentina as these places to protect nature and biodiversity. So they need to limit tourism in these parks and they need to control uh, the behavior and the movement of, of tourists when they go to visit these parks. There are parks in Brazil that cannot even visit because they are called national parks, but they're mostly like this very strict nature uh, reserves where you can only go there if you're like a scientist. So that started, started mostly in the 1990s. And at the same time, in Brazil, the Iguazu Park becomes the first park where they hire um, a third party um, company to manage all the, all the tourism infrastructure. And that didn't happen before. So we had that in Brazil. We started in the 2000s. So that's very distinct of that park within Brazil. Now they, they are expanding that to our parks. And the hotel that you stayed, I think that it was like a big kind of like colonial hotel, right? Expensive one. Because the two parks, they um, established these very expensive hotels. First Brazil in the 1950s, and then Argentina in the 1970s. They are like trying to mimic the, yeah. at the time, the hotels that you have in parks like Yosemite or Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. It, it wasn't just a big hotel. It no. was a quite small hotel. It was a bit, uh, I thought it was a bit uh, expensive for me, but I what? don't know what is expected to be <laughs> expensive. So, so Was it inside the national park or was it outside it? I, I, it, I think it must have been because it was just uh, next to the, the Igasu River. Okay, so yeah, yeah so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're staying in a Parks Hotel or, because there's some uh, other private uh, small conservation areas owned by private people who have uh, like hotels nearby. So you might have to stay in one of those, I don't know. Yeah. But they, for most people, but what's inter what, what was interesting about your question is that a lot of people who visit the falls don't, don't realize that they're entering a national park. No. Because they, right. they the falls are sold as the main thing and they don't talk much about the actual national park because you can't go to the rest of the national park anyway. 
Right. So we have a couple of questions in the chat about uh, satellite imagery. Um, so Micah started off asking, you know, what's the difficulties and benefits of using satellite imagery as a source and methodologically, how do you deal with them? Uh, we have some follow-ups then uh, from Christine on the, you know, are the images from the satellites from a particular country such as the US? I guess, are there some then limitations with that? Uh, and also, where do you get hold of these images? Is it uh, S3 or some other source? Okay, uh, that's a great question. Can I share my screen again so I can talk about satellite images showing them? Okay, so um, in my book, I use three uh, sets of, of satellite and aerial images to do the type of, of research that I did. Um, the first are a set of like um, over 200 aerial images that were created by the govern, government of the state of Paraná in Brazil in the 1950s, 1950s, when the state was celebrating 100 years of its creation as a state, the local state government decided to do a survey of the entire territory of the state with uh, aerial images. And these uh, images, they were in a box in an in a archive in a, of, a, of a state agency. And I found them in a box and I had them scanned and, and I started using them to my, to my research. So there's that. These are not satellite images, they're aerial images, they're images produced by an actual analog camera, film camera mounted in an airplane. In the 1980s, the same state government also produced another survey of the entire state. So with the two types of images I had, this is, this is the park, this side here is, is the Brazilian park, this side here is outside the Brazilian park, this is 1953. And this is the same area in 1980. So with the two sets of images, I had images of the park before most of the colonization in the area had happened and before settlers had moved inside the Brazilian park. And another set in the from the 1980 to 1980 after colonization had happened outside the park and the settlers who were living there had been expelled. So I had this two. I also found, um, I, had, I also bought corona images from the United States Geological Service. And these were images produced by this spy satellite program launched by the United States in the 1960s, where they had this spy satellites called corona, which is kind of a coincidence today. And these with this um, analog cameras and they would parachute the film every now and then. And they had this collection, collection stations spread throughout the, the world. And for many years, the images of this, for many years, this program was a, was a uh, secret program. People, didn't, the government didn't speak about it um, in the open. But in the 90s, the Clinton administration, they declassified all this and now you can buy these images uh, from the government. So I, I found, and they register areas that they thought would be of a strategic, strategic interest. So 
luckily this border area that I studied was of strategic interest. So this is an image of this border area in 1967. And as you can see here, Brazil is, is getting more and more developed, but there's still a lot of forest. And Argentina, which is the this part here is mostly forest and Paraguay is getting more and more uh, deforested and becoming converted into farmland. This is the area today. Um, so this is the origin. So what I did was with the aerial images, they're all a series of small images. I had to, what we call geo-reference them, put them in place. So I worked with, with a lot of um, research assistants, uh, undergrad and grad students, both at Stanford and here at, at NC State. And then I did some um, land, class, land use classification based on all these images. So I had four sets of, of four different periods. So this is um, 1953. This is the area of the, Argent uh, the Brazilian park, a little bit of the Argentine park. The yellow area are the areas that were cleared. The green areas, the areas are still forest. And then it becomes more and more clear. And then you already see some people entering the Brazilian park. And these are where all the people were eventually evicted from and outside it's all cleared. And then this is the 1980s and this is today. Um, and it can also use these images to do a more qualitative analysis. Um, so I, in my book, I talk about different places and I, I compare the two, ima two images from 1953 and 1980 to talk about those places and also as I said in my presentation, use these images to uh, um, hypothesize places where uh, the Guarani community lived before the creation of the park. I don't have area images from before the creation of the park, but I have from after 12, 14 years after the creation of the park. So I use that to hypothesize. Thanks, that was absolutely fascinating to see those satellite images too. Um, so we have one question. Uh, more questions. Just, more, just more, okay. one more thing. If yeah. you go to my personal website, uh, fredericofreitas.org, um, I have a lot, a lot of links to uh, places where you can actually see these images in place mm -hmm. of maps, online maps, so you can go and see and, and, and walk around the place and see all these images yep. in place. Thanks. That's, that's useful. Uh, you could also share the link in your in the chat if you wanted to. So, yeah, uh, yeah. But we have a, a question then from um, Angeles. Hi, hi everyone. Hi, Fred. Hi there. <laughs> um, so, uh, for those of you, you don't need to know. Oh my God, my camera now it's super wide, so you can see the mess right there. Um, so I'm a historian of Latin America as well, and I study a different border in the Andes. And my research finishes with the creation of a national park there, which is the one created with Iwasu. So Fred, my, my question is from that um, stance. Um, you talked about the, the transformation of space from forest land to farmland. 
but I wanted to ask if you could expand the transformation of space into what the, the, the park should look like. I know that in your book you mentioned, and I know from earlier work you mentioned the introduction of species because the park had to look a certain way. And I certainly see that in, in Patagonia, but I wanted to ask if, if you saw it in Iwaso in either country, the manipulation of, of nature so that it looks how it needs to look for the, for the um, you know, for the photograph. Um, yeah, that, that's my question basically. I think, I think this is a great question. Um, what uh, Dr. Tony is mentioning is that at the same time that you have these parks and, and the, at this border between Brazil and Argentina, this area of subtropical rainforest, you also have in the south of Argentina, in the south uh, west of Argentina, in the Andes, you have all these mountain parks and they were created at the same time using the same uh, legislation by the same people. And what's in, it's interesting about the, the Patagonia parks, like you, you know, uh, Angie, is that in Patagonia, they had this um, ideal of what a mountain alpine landscape should look like, and a, a mountain experience should look like. So they brought in a series of, of species from, from the US, I think from Canada, like deer and moose to populate those parks. And they also brought in a species of tree. They, they use a lot of different stuff. They brought in fish to, to put in the lakes there to make those parks fit in what they imagine uh, uh, park experience should look like in the, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. And Iguazu, they didn't do any of that because Iguazu has a very different, it's not, a, uh, it's not something that you can find something similar in, in the US of Europe. It's a subtropical, very highly biodiverse diverse forest. And especially the Argentines, the Brazilians, they saw that area and they saw this is just a continuation of what we have in Rio and Sao Paulo. There's nothing new there. It's nothing uh, exotic, but the Argentines, they look at that region and they thought something really exotic that they should keep as it was. So they didn't want it to confirm that to a previously held ideal of landscape. So that didn't happen. What, ha what does happen is that when you have settlers coming inside the parks, you have the settlers themselves bringing uh, species like from dogs and chickens to um, orange trees to all the kind of stuff that they, they were useful for them inside the parks. But that's not the, the actual National Park Administration trying to confirm the park landscape to what they understood as an ideal park should look like. There's a related question to that. You talked about, um, um, I mean, I'm looking the way you expect it is to look. Uh, you talked earlier about the development of infrastructure also in this area, both for, for tourism and then also for, for the settlers initially. And then you said that 
when the settlers were uh, kicked out, nature just reclaimed, like, I guess, eradicated all traces then, which is very different, I think, from what you'd see, I mean, up here in the north where things basically stay forever. So you have to go in and I mean, restore it, like, deliberately. You have to take out those traces. Uh, so is that not a concern at all in just you'd let nature just, uh, you know, delete all traces of colonists? Is that a case? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. When they, they, I'm thinking more in terms of Brazil, when they evicted the settlers from the Brazilian park, where you have the, the largest impact inside the park in that area, there was, there was a discussion among national park officials and, and technicians and scientists to do a uh, concerted effort to reforest that area. And they did a little bit of removing some of the introduced plant species. Of course, they, they removed all the people and they, by removing all the people, they removed all their animals. Although most of the uh, livestock was not a big thing. It's not a big thing in this region. But um, they didn't invest a lot of time and effort and money to do that. They didn't do so because first they thought that, and this is somewhat true, not entirely true, but they thought that it would eventually retake the, the, the landscape that was changed. And that happens in some degree in some parts of the, in some areas that were occupied in some other areas, um, it's taking longer to, for that to happen. But if you, in many places and in Brazil, many places, not everywhere, but in many, especially in this area where unlike the Amazon, the soil is not as poor as the soil in the Amazon. So if you um, cut all the trees and leave the, the forest, uh, the area, the cleared area uh, idle for decades, eventually it regrows. Of course, if you're like a, a, a botanist, a, geolo uh, uh, a biologist and you go in the forest and can tell that the forest is new, it's not old, the degree of, of, but in some sense, all this forest is, is, has a lot of, has centuries of, of human intervention anyway, even the forests that were not occupied by settlers uh, 50 years ago, they had centuries of, of human intervention, of indigenous intervention, and even um, Brazilian society, Portuguese society intervention, even before the creation of the parks, even the areas that are closed forest, closed jungle, you have like, if you're like, you know what to look for, you can find traces of, of, of anthropogenic action there. All right, so we have a question from Demi. Hi, uh, thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about the agrarian reform tools. Um, you mentioned in your book um, that you make a comparison between the agrarian reform tools used by the Brazilian state to evict settlers from the parks um, and those used to guarantee land in the Amazon. 
and I wondered if you could maybe say a little bit more about that relationship um, and then I wondered um, whether you see the same kind of strategies being used at all today um, and if you could speak to that. Okay, thank you. Um, when the Brazilian military dictatorship starts, they, they, the military took power in 64. And one of the things that they were really concerned about when they, they overthrew the government was that there was a lot of unrest in the Brazilian countryside. And such unrest was caused by issues of land tenure. There was a lot of people living in the countryside that didn't have access to control the land that they worked, uh, where they worked. So the military, they, their analysis was that there was an issue of, of lack of land because in many places of Brazil, not in this particular area, but in many places of Brazil, you have a lot of big uh, land is really concentrated in a few hands. So what they envisioned was to create a mass, to bring people from areas where you have access to people in the countryside with no land to areas where they don't have people living, uh, i.e. the Amazon. So the military launched all these different programs to, to bring people from other parts of Blue to the Amazon in colonization projects. And they built all this infrastructure, both in terms of the agencies that would carry out these programs, but also in terms of the legislation that would allow them to do that. They were a dictatorship, but they were a very legalistic dictatorship. So they introduced the basic agrarian reform framework that's still in place in Brazil today. And they created this um, agency called uh, INCRA, that's the acronym that stands for um, Colonization and Agrarian Reform Institute. And their idea of doing agrarian reform was bringing people to frontier areas and, and opening frontier areas to, instead of like actually dealing with the land, uh, the structure of the land ownership in Brazil, they just moved people from other areas and they, they settled people there. So in the parks, they used that infrastructure that they had just created. And I, I, I argue in my book that they use that as a Petri dish and the parks are far from the Amazon. They're in the other, uh, very distant from the Amazon. But they use that same structure to test those policies and, and those agencies. So what they did was they, um, through a series of legal processes, they uh, determined that the people should leave the park and they established uh, outside the park, a hundred uh, miles away in a, an area that was still kind of like forested. They established a colonization project there and they settled the people who wanted to move there. They settled people there and they sold the land there for cheap. Although a lot of people didn't want to move there. So that's when they use a lot of like uh, heavy handed, they arrested people, they threatened people with torturing if you don't, uh, accept what we're offering, you're gonna face the consequences. But they used that structure and it was so, which later they, like just one, two years later, they would use in the Amazon. So I was wondering about, um, you know, the fact that this is a falls where it sounds like, I mean, Brazil and, and Argentina both have 
kind of half of, of the falls. And I'm, I was thinking about Niagara, right? So I've been to Niagara Falls and they're, if you will, the, they each have a falls, Canada and the US, but they're in a way they're separate falls, right? They're, they're kind of separate structures. So, so they, it, yeah, I'm wondering how this works from a, from a collaboration, cooperation versus competition. Um, and uh, it sounds like, you know, in your story, then Argentina proposes it first to make a national park that includes these falls. So then Brazil responds and makes theirs. But so were they always in competition with each other about this or do they ever cooperate in anything? Um, so like today, when you go visit the falls, do you only go on one side? You don't go to the other country on the other side or do you I mean how does it, how does it all work so um collaboration started team teamedly in the 1990s and 2000s when um Brazil and Argentina along with other South American countries they formed this uh e common economic market but before that um the falls were this nexus that represented the competition between the two, two countries. The two countries emerged from uh, the mid 1990s as the two regional powers in South America. And they're jockeying for to be the, the greatest power within the region. And that continues even when they, the two countries have military dictatorships, they, they are in some ways at odds at each other. They are collaborating with, with torturing and and, and persecuting political uh, opponents, but in all the other areas, they are kind of not collaborating. So they, the parks, they reproduce that dynamic. Uh, about the falls, it's really interesting because um, you have very different experiences at each side of the border. It, it's a system of falls that as you have like many different falls but they're all connected to each other. And from Brazil, what you have is the panoramic view of the entire system. So if you wanna see the entire system, you go to Brazil. If you, have, you wanna have like a very close experience with the falls, walk through pathways to, between the falls, you go to Argentina. So what tourist guide say when you go there is that you have to go to both countries to see to have the full experience of the falls. And to do that, if you're not a Brazilian or Argentine, you have to first enter Brazil, enter the national park in Brazil, see the falls from Brazil, get uh, out of the national park, cross the border, go through customs, go to Argentina, enter the national park in Argentina, see the falls in Argentina. So that's, that's what happens. So you have to go through customs to go outside the parks to go to see the falls from both sides. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you, you just see the way that politics and nature intersect, right? So yeah. there, there are particular natural forms uh, that are there, but the way that, you know, our nation states divide that up into uh, control areas and how they can align with their ideologies is, is so interesting in, in this case. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting history from that way. Um, and I mean, I guess 
the the with these national parks then that are set up as you said people don't actually go to the whole rest of the national park um so is there was there pressure at that time about how big those should be because i noticed how argentina's was rather small compared to the size of the brazilian ones so why is it that it was made as big as it was in brazil yeah i think that's a great question even the argentine one there's like a debate about how big it should be in the beginning and to sum up to try to put the two debates at the two sides of the border into one single conversation what happened is that you have people proposing for the creation of the parks to protect the falls and their surrounding areas, the immediate surrounding areas, just for like scenic uh, reasons. But you also have those people that I talked before in, in the beginning of the Q&A, the people who are like scientists, uh, natural scientists, people interested in conservation, were in the 1920s and the 1910s proposing for the creation of parks to preserve nature, they were pressuring um, and taking advantage of the situation to expand these parks to uh, protect forests. And the issue of forest and mode of forest of deforestation in the two countries in the 1990s was already an issue. Is already something that people were, like, were, were concerned about, worried about. Um, especially in Brazil, but also in Argentina. And they managed to convince uh, the government that if you are creating these parks, you should expand them to also protect forests. So we have these two things happening at the same time, and these two groups that have di different interests uh, lobbying uh, the government to create parks for different reasons. And the parks are created and they have to attend these different reasons. All right, so our time is running out, so we should wrap up now. So I'd like to just uh, thank you, uh, Frederico Freitas, for uh, talking about your new book, Nationalizing Nature, which is out now. And also thanks to everyone in the audience for uh, asking great questions. And there it is. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great opportunity to talk about my book and to uh, answer questions. Yeah. And so we hope everyone will join us next week. We have a very special um, book talk. It'll actually be a um, conversation with a number of different environmental historians.